Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Whoa, hey everybody. This is your good friend, the Safety Doc from down here in the North Star recording studio yes in wisconsin it's cooling down outside but it's hot down here in the studio which is good news um and you know i've been flying solo here for some shows and today though i have a special guest on lisa lenny lenny as knee lenny is an attorney at murphy legal in texas her focus is motion practice so one of the things with motion practice Remember, if you're Houston Astros baseball, it's a double slide. First to second, second to third. Motion practice and appellate law. Lisa's appellate practice begins before a case even goes to trial. She participates in trial preparation by researching thorny issues and crafting motions in support of her client's positions and to preserve the trial record for any potential appeal. Lisa also handles appellate work, including briefing, an oral argument. She is a graduate of Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks, David. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> wow, I am. I'm also uh, thrilled to have you on the show. And I met Lisa um, after watching the Old Humble Distillery podcast. Old Humble, um, Humble. H-U-M-B-L. It's a city in Texas, Old Humble uh, Distillery. Lisa's a co-host on that show with Joe. And I learned of her, her legal background and was like, whoa, she would be fascinating to have on the show. We also talked, I teach legal issue courses at a university in Wisconsin, I was assembling some case studies and she helped me out with that. So thank you for that Lisa, so how is, um, well, it's a day after Halloween. For me, this is kind of a letdown because Halloween is my favorite day of the year. So when you get after Halloween, you know, the, the TV shows, the travel channel, they kind of ease back off of the ghost shows and haunted Gettysburg. And, and you know, I, some like, ah, I miss that. But tell me about your Halloween. Um, I bought a lot of candy. <laughs> and I did that on Friday. And I, you know, tried really hard from Friday to Sunday to eat just about everything with caramel in it. And so I filled up this big pumpkin-shaped basket of candy. And I, I live near the University of Houston. It's an urban neighborhood. I've never seen a kid on my block Um but there are two high schools near, like there are schools nearby. Okay. Um, so anyway, I put my house on the treat map in the next door app. And I got one group of a half dozen sophomore high school students come to my door. And That's awesome. they were so cute. Like the <laughs> tallest one knocked on the door. It was like trick or treat. He's got his mask on and you can see like he's, peeking into my window. And uh, so I hold the pumpkin basket out and it's like, I'm so glad you're here. You know, 
hope you guys are having fun tonight. And like the first kid reaches in and takes one piece of candy out. And the next kid reaches in and takes one piece of candy out. And I'm like, y'all, what's with this taking one piece of candy? Like, get a handful. I do not need this candy in my house. And so all of a sudden I have like all these hands going into the basket. And they were like really excited about it that I was giving them so much candy. That so is anyway, so cool. Yeah, they started walking off and and I put the basket down. I was like, I need a photo of my trick-or-treaters. Yes. So I grab my phone and shut my front door and go jogging down the down the street, like waving and yelling at them. So anyway, yeah, I, I got a photo of, of my my high school trick-or-treaters. So they were they were super cute. <laughs> So how how many total trick or treaters did you have? That was it. Those six kids were okay. kids. <laughs> six kids. So wow. they came. I want to say it was about eight thirty. Which is in trick or treat. Okay, so that's pretty late for trick or treating. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so. Yeah. So like, I cut it off at nine. I turned the light out at nine. Wow. Okay. So what are trick or treating hours where you are at? I don't know. I okay. Mean, <laughs> I would, I mean, it gets dark right now before seven. So, right. like, if you've got a little kid, I would think that you know, you probably feed them and head out the door at about six o'clock. <laughs> okay. So, but at least the weather was nice last night. Like in the seventies, really mild, no rain. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. where, where I live, um, we live close to the school campus in town, meaning that the elementary schools, the middle school and high school are all in this one area of land. And we had 800 trick-or-treaters uh, last night between 4 and 7 p.m., which isn't unusual. It's on the high end, but it's not unusual. You, you prepare for that. Um, and what was... Uh, so next to us is the neighborhood that gives out the full-size candy bars, like a block away. You know, the kids come up and then we give out, you know, the two fun size and they're like, okay, like what else? I'm like, this is it. Come on. It's experience here though. Like I put the skeletons out for you and I got the bloody leg under the, under the, the garage door and, yeah, and like I put time into this, right? Like, and so, um, and, and yes, but, but it's fun. I mean, it, I, it's my favorite holiday of the year. And there had there was a kid, maybe like three, four years old, who was done up as uh, Beetlejuice. Perfect, <laughs> like Michael Keaton, like spot on. And uh, and I was like, this this was amazing, just the detail that went in. And the and the kid knew how to kind of play off the Beetlejuice vibe as he was coming up to the house and stuff like that. Was awesome. Wow. Um, but yeah, and and. My daughter uh, was out trick-or-treating with her friends and it cooled down substantially. So maybe it was at 48 when they went out and was about like 35 when they came back, which, and it was not raining or snowing or anything. We've had that happen here. When they came back to the house, um, I started a fire. We heat our house with wood, but we live on top of a hill. So the white smoke is coming out and then it's coming down into the valley and the kids get the whole haunt experience of, <laughs> or they're like, is there a new pulp that's been named or something like that? I'm like, no, no. Uh, but you know, so 
yeah, uh, pretty, pretty wild stuff. Um, but so anyway, Halloween, scary stuff. Some scary stuff can be dun, 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 litigation. And today's um, show title is COVID chaos. Parents sue school districts. Special guest attorney Lisa Lenny. So this is this is happening here in Wisconsin. Um, I've read we've had multiple uh, instances now where parents have sued school districts saying, you did not keep my child safe and my child caught COVID uh, from school, from the school setting, and you needed to, to do more to mitigate that. Uh, so school, you have responsibility in this. Um, there's also a weird variable, and we have a PAC, a PAC, uh, which is funding some of these um, lawsuits, and that's been in the news. Um, but nonetheless, uh, multiple districts getting uh, similar lawsuits or receiving them. So uh, I teach legal issue courses for school superintendents, aspiring superintendents, and aspiring um, special education directors, school leaders. This is a topic we've been talking about because some of them have been in districts that have received these lawsuits. Um, so what we're going to do today is talk about what happens when a parent sues a school district saying, hey, my child, for example, caught COVID and I think you're responsible for it at school. I believe it happened at school. What happens behind the scenes? Uh, what does a school do when they receive a lawsuit? Um, what does this look like if it's, you know, once it, it hits the courts, what might be a parent's strongest argument or a school's strongest argument? Um, because we're seeing a lot of this in the news. Like I see it in the newspapers. My students are asking about it in class. I'm seeing it on national headlines. And I think we'll, we'll see more of this. So just to get people familiar with how to these arguments are kind of framed and how schools and litigation kind of operates in this regard. So, um, so again, the purpose of this interview, and I do have a, as I'm looking here at everybody in the audience, let me give a few shout outs to our good friend, Bacon Maldito in Inglewood, California, Bacon Maldito in Inglewood, um, who is, uh, he's championing for a Dismore's IGA in Inglewood. And I wish him the best because um, the in-store deli is awesome. Uh, they have strong Wi-Fi, great deals, um, but it's an uphill battle, buddy. I don't know if they're going to leave the greater Washington area, but keep going. Fight the good fight. This Moore's IGA. It's, a, and it, it's what? It's a, this Moore's IGA is um, in Washington State, and our friend Bacon Maldito, who is in the chat, lives in Inglewood. So he's hoping that they will branch off and come into California. Oh, so that's a supermarket. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, here in Texas we have HEB. Okay. And oh my gosh, <laughs> I I lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area for a while, and there were no HEBs in like in the city. They were all out, um, like way far out in suburbs. And um, I lived there for a little over a year. And man, I missed my HEB. So, really? Oh gosh, yes. Okay. So yeah, they they just they have a a lot of really fantastic products. They do a contest where 
They ask customers to come up with products and then they put them into production. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so they, some of them have like these cooking stations where somebody's basically teaching how to make a meal. Um, they have fresh sushi. They have, I mean, great cheese selection. They are the largest um, wine purchaser in Texas. And um, so good. So, wow. so good. So, yes, I understand this longing for, you know, one of those spectacular grocery <laughs> stores. So. That sounds like a challenge to Dismores. Yes, I would absolutely. <laughs> My goodness. I want to give a shout out. We have a listener from Germany. Yes, the country of Germany right now. Uh, Phil Henry is in the house. Uh, Phil Henry in Germany. He did show me the uh, multi-station radio interface thing that he has to go through in order to get the international shows. It's quite quite a feat. But uh, Phil Henry, who is friend of the show, and is also um, a friend of the Nailman statues, which are mentioned in my book, um, The Velocity of Information, coming back to Austria in World War I. So it's kind of an obscure reference, but if you do want to do an internet search, Nailman, World War I, you'll understand what I'm talking about with that. And Joe Dolio is in the house. Joe, I listened to your entire podcast, your interview with... Um, Brooke um, says America or Brooke, and I didn't hear your shout out to me, buddy. So I don't know, man, if I got to listen again, or it was a, it was an hour and 12 minutes, but I was listening for the old safety doc shout out. So you might have to point me in, in the direction of the other show. Cause I think you said you gave me a shout out, but a uh, great show. So we have, uh, we have people uh, coming in here and yes, uh, Phil. So Phil is representing, he's keeping it balanced here. It's going to give us an update on what is happening in Germany here at some point. But right now, purpose of this episode, again, we're going to understand what happens or go through the pieces when a parent sues a school district. So this type of litigation, again, is happening in my state here in Wisconsin. It's making the news. And this is the statement that seems ubiquitous across lawsuits. Here it is. The school board and the superintendent are not providing a safety or a safe environment. The school board, Board of Education, and superintendent are not providing a safe environment. Um, right away, a disclaimer. This show is for entertainment purposes only. only. Uh, this interview does not constitute legal advice. It does not presume fault or specific actions have been taken by school districts or potential third parties, which might have some responsibility. We're not going to identify districts by name in this. And Lisa's going to talk in gener generalities, right? And uh, kind of just how behaviors happen in litigation. So um, yes, don't take this as your exhibit A when you prepare to be involved in litigation. But this will bring some sense of, uh, of what is what would be familiar when you start hearing terms on the radio or people talk about what is an accelerating area of litigation here in Wisconsin. So a few things. One is um, when we talk about school districts, for this show, we're going to kind of talk, school districts will represent a board of education that's elected by the public. 
Board of Education members who typically, by the way, make three or $4,000 a year in Wisconsin. And I say that because I've seen people who are saying, well, we'll take away the pensions of the Board of Education and all of this stuff. I'm like, they, they make about, you know, $100 a a meeting or something like that. It's not much. So um, your board of education and they create policy for your school. Your school policies come out of board of education. Then your superintendent is the person who runs the school, is in charge of the school. Um, you can also have some other people in that line, um, such as principals, right? Uh, teachers and things like that. But really, when we talk about school district, we're going to talk about the board of education, which makes policy. And that's your school board meetings and then the superintendent who is in charge of the school and kind of making sure that those policies are implemented. So let's go through this. Um, Lisa, right off, the, right off the bat, I'm using the bat analogy a lot because it's baseball season, World Series. You're in Houston. Houston Astros um, are playing the Braves, who used to be in Milwaukee. I'm in Wisconsin, and they won a World Series. And so these connections are there. They're very much identified tonight, this baseball theme. Um, but what happens? How does a district know that they've been sued? How does how do they how are they notified? So typically there will be a legal officer uh, for the school district or um, like a main office for the school district. I mean, the, the school district is going to have I mean, except in very rare cases, they're they're going to have like a main administration building and process server is probably going to walk right up to the front door and say, here you go. We sign here. So um, it's really, it's not, you know, when you, when you have an organized um you know, institution or business, you know, there's a physical address, then it's pretty easy to get, get them served so that they have notice. So serve has to be in person? No. Nope. Okay. At least not in Texas. Um, you can, in Texas, you can serve personally by mail, by fax, by email, well, not email. Not email, but there's an electronic service uh, that you can go through that does populate somebody's email. Um, so, I mean, and you can also do it by publication in certain circumstances. Um, so, but, you know, generally, um, generally personal service is used. Um, and for businesses, it's typically there's typically a corporation that accepts service. There'll be a registered agent is what it's called. Okay. Um, and they'll accept service on behalf of um, a corporation that may or may not be located in Texas. So there are a couple of different companies who do that. Um, so, but like I said, if, if there's a, a main address, then it's probably going to get delivered to that address. So either you know, by personal service or likely certified mail. So like, well, so yesterday it was Sunday, so it's Halloween, but to yeah. deliver on Halloween would be kind of a weird trick-or-treat type thing. Trick-or-treat, here's a, you've been served. 
Could be time, but you know, your school administration building is probably not open on a Sunday. So, so, but I would imagine that you know, there's been more than a few divorce cases that have been served that way. Lisa, when I was a, a school administrator, um, some of my my close friends who are also administrators, I we went out uh, golfing and we had a picture taken of the the four of us. So I had it made into an eight by ten, and I sent it to, to each of them. But I sent it um, certified mail in a mailer that I had a false uh, legal company up in the top, just fabricate it right that didn't exist. And then in, in on the envelope it said. Um, due process lawsuit open immediately, like in big, <laughs> you know, it had labels printed off and I had like their names and, and immediately, you know, they, one of them said I was in a meeting and then I got called up by me, my administrative assistant. And she's like, you have to open this. Like, this is your name. And of course it was just, I sent them the picture. So, um, it was a good spoof, but yeah, each one of them, like that day, got a hold of me and was telling the scenario where it quickly worked its way through the mail room and all of this stuff and got handed to them. And, and then they're all like, oh, God, no, no. And then open it up. So, but it was, yes, a fictitious email address up in or a return address up in the corner. So, um, but yeah, it's a little prank here from the safety doc, right? This was good friends. Um, but yeah. My friend Tim will never forget that, though. He's like, yes, yeah. so, like everyone was just like hovered around him, like, open it up, open it up. So, um, well, what, so what happens if somebody receives a lawsuit? Like what immediately, and think, well, let's think about schools. What probably happens like in those hours after they receive that, that they've been served? So I'm. What should happen is they should give that to their legal counsel, whether that person is in-house or, you know, at an external firm so that that person can review the claims that are in the suit and then, you know, decide on some preliminary strategy. The first thing that has to happen in the suit is to, um, to answer it in some form. Um, so there are a few technical uh, issues that you can try and get rid of the suit without actually filing an answer. But, um, you know, in these cases, that's, that's probably going to be really rare. So, I mean, the first thing that needs to happen is, is to answer the suit. And then the timeline to do that, at least here in Texas, is about three weeks. There's, it's like the Monday following, it's 10 a.m. on the Monday following 20 right. days. And, you know, if that Monday is a holiday, then it's on the Tuesday. And anyway, so, but I don't, I don't know what it is in, as in Wisconsin, but generally, you know, it's a, it's a fairly short amount of time that you have to, um, that you have to file an answer. And the reason for that is you have to prevent a default judgment. Okay. So what, and basically what that is, is if the school district doesn't answer and make an appearance in the court, then um, a judge can order that the plaintiff, plaintiff wins by default because nobody bothered to respond. So it's one of those things of saying, 
um covering your ears and and pretending like it never arrived and just like and it's like that doesn't work no don't make me um, ostrich so okay so there's this let me um let me ask this question so um in in wisconsin um these lawsuits have two components to them one is the, it, it, right, it states that the plaintiff, the parent, is seeking uh, declaratory and injunctive relief. So those two, declaratory and injunctive. Um, so what is what does that mean when that appears on the lawsuit? So declaratory relief is asking the court to declare something. Um, so in this case, it may be to um, declare that masks are, are mandatory or declare that the uh, school district should enforce their mask mandate or it's a, it's an affirmative um Uh, and it's an affirmative statement, basically, which you'll see contrasted with injunctive relief. Uh, injunctive relief requires someone to stop doing something. So, um, and if, I guess, I'm trying to think of what they might be asking for in injunctive Have Have you seen anything specified under injunctive relief? So my my interpretation on on this uh, for injunctive relief is that you um, have to um, stop a lot. You have to stop allowing for discretion of mask wearing. Like it has to. You have to remove that discretion. And say we are requiring you to wear a mask in our schools. Right. Um, and then. Uh, I've I've interpreted the declaratory to kind of be this this maneuver of trying to pressure, you know, get enough pressure on these districts where they're trying to get the state to jump in and make a decision and say, okay, all schools, you know, people in schools need to wear masks, and and that um, may be the intent of yeah. it, but the court can only the court can only impose the declaratory relief onto the defendant party. It can't so say like, you know, you've got one school district. Um, that's, that's going to be the only school district it applies to. We have 421 districts in our state and one is on an Island. And um, so, so what you're saying, Lisa is, this will apply to that one district, which has been named in the suit. Mm -hmm. And and so what is happening is the PAC um, is supporting multiple parents in multiple districts to litigate this identical suit. And I've looked at the lawsuits. I've downloaded them. They're virtually identical word for word. Um, and, and the PAC has said that. Um, and the PAC is trying to build pressure i mean publicly they've come out and said this we're trying to, to build pressure to have a state response on this so we don't have to go and keep going into you know now it's five districts and 10 then 20 then 30 then 50 and, and whatever it would be 
But um, in, pre- in, in trying to get the districts, and I think to pressure onto their legislative bodies or their Department of Public Construction, things like that. But but okay, so right, so um, declarative. Um, one more time, how would you? Declaratory relief is like the the court would say that a district has to do something. So, and then injunctive relief is telling the district that they they can't okay. do something. So in this case, case um, declaratory could be you have to um, have students and staff wear masks. Yeah. The injunctive could be like that you can't have this as a self-discretion type right. thing. You know, wear it if right. you want to. Okay, got it. Um, so how about this? Our board members, so boards can have anywhere from like five members up to 11, um, but board of education are the members and the superintendent, are they usually represented by one legal counsel in a lawsuit or are they going to seek out their own legal counsel or are there times when they kind of, you know, split and decide I'm okay. I'm represented by the school, but I should also receive my own legal counsel. What, what kind of goes through the mind and the processes uh, of a board and a superintendent when they receive like this type of litigation? Well, first of all, if a board member or a superintendent is named in the suit, they are generally named in their official capacity as yes. a board member or as an employee of the school district. If someone should be named in their personal capacity, um, there are objections, that are, there are motions that can be filed in order to resolve that and saying, look, this person, there's a concept in jurisdiction called standing and capacity. And, um, you know, someone is sued personally. That's not the way that these parents can get relief. There's no personal liability um, imposed on a superintendent unless there is some sort of special duty, which I I can't imagine there would be in this case. Um, You know, unless a superintendent has made some sort of representation to these particular parents. Um, So, you know, there's, there's that aspect of it is the official capacity versus a personal capacity. Uh, The next thing that I would look at is where their insurance coverage is. Yes. Um, So, and under, under what policies, you know, are they, and are these policies the same insurance company? Are they with separate insurance companies? Cause you're going to have, um, you know, you're going to have coverage for people who are serving as, the school board members um, and you may have the superintendent on a separate policy because he's an employee. Right. Oftentimes, um, so a school district will, or school district insurance company, because of those insurance policies, included in those policies is generally uh, a legal defense. They'll have a duty to defend uh, these parties under those those insurance policies. So if you have 
um, like, um, if you have one policy for the school board and one policy for the, the, the superintendent is covered, uh, whether they are with separate insurance companies or the same insurance company, um, if they're with the same insurance company, they're generally with different claims handlers. So that will, there will usually be a conversation to figure out, okay, how are we going to coordinate this defense? And, and, you know, do we just hire one law firm for, for both, but somebody's going to have to do, um, to see if there's any conflict of interest between the school board members and right. the school district. Um, Right offhand, I can't think of any that there would be. Um, but you know, it's it's possible. Like perhaps the it, perhaps the mask mandate didn't wasn't didn't come to the school board, but maybe it came up administratively. Right. So that would be an example of, of where the conflict is. And so, you know, you may have, um, and it's not really a, a conflict. It's a, it's a way to get the school board members out of, of the lawsuit and the same attorney could, could handle that. So, and there are various mechanisms of, of getting a party out generally, um, a motion for summary judgment is what you're going to be looking for. So in the lawsuits in Wisconsin, um, this hasn't occurred with one of the districts that's been the recipient of lawsuit, but this did occur in Wisconsin. Um, a, a school administrative team, meaning um, the cabinet, director of instruction, special education, health services, and a superintendent recommended to the school board in open session that the school board adopt a full mask mandate. The board voted against it and said no. So in that case, now you have a superintendent who has brought forward information to inform a school board and the school board is deciding to act in a different direction. Um, in that so, case, they probably want separate legal counsel. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's something where... Um, one of the things that I share in, in my courses, again, I, I am not an attorney, um, but I, I have been an expert legal witness and was a school administrator for 20 plus years and advise my um, aspiring superintendents and forth to get a consult um, from an attorney if they are named in you know, significant litigation. Um, just because there can be situations like this, and I've, I've experienced this as an expert witness where a board of education and a superintendent kind of split um, in, in the process of litigation saying, well, this is, you know, this is what the board was doing and this is what the superintendent, or the board can say, like, we voted this in and the superintendent didn't carry it out. He, the superintendent, he or she didn't meet with um, the principals didn't put together a plan for professional development on this. And the fact that this didn't happen in the school is, is on the shoulders of the policy wasn't enacted by the superintendent. Uh, but yeah, so we're starting to see some, some interesting kind of splits uh, right where there should be a seamless um, 
portrayal from the district, right? The district should have the same pay. The board of education, the superintendent should be aligned. And if they're not, as I tell my superintendents, like you should start looking somewhere else for a job because it's not going to be good for you in the long term if your board of education. They are going to throw you under the bus at some point. Right. Substantial. And they'll separate. And what's happening, what's happened in those cases. See what I did there? Right. <laughs> They they separate out and then they'll they'll say yeah you were acting outside of your your role or weren't fulfilling your role so it can it can be messy um mm -hmm. so I spent the yeah. uh, part of my time today talking with some of my superintendents uh, one directly involved in this and then um, also talking with um, a, um, some uh, legal representation for freedom of information which we'll get through later but uh, but yeah so. Right, well, let's go over and check the chat room, by the way. Uh, Phil Phil Henry is holding down the entire country of Germany. So he has a 7,000-watt antenna on top of his house, which draws attention from the neighbors during the day. But at night, it's okay. But during the day, yeah, there's some questions. Um, but yes, uh, so Phil Henry's in the house. He says, a question. If students go to school, there is insurance for them, health accidents, ambulance. Yeah, schools do have that. Uh, policy is this covered by the state or has it has does that have to be bought by parents so in, in wisconsin so example is the kid is in fiad class and uh you know they get knocked out because they fall off a scooter and hit the wall or something you know it, it, in uh, in innocent accident right during gym class um and is what does it look like for school insurance to cover in Wisconsin, that's paid for by the schools. Um, but then if there's cost of making the student whole, I guess, which would be dental work or things like that, I assume that goes to the parents. It's a good question. Like as a school administrator for 25 years, I have no idea. Um, but we did we did have uh, errors and emissions and general liability insurance um, for the school. Uh, but that, you know, those were, those. I mean, something like that is an accident. Usually that's that or recess or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah. Um, so sure. yeah, the accident happens, but generally the child's parents, their um, their insurance would be the one to like when the first when the child first gets treated, they're going to ask for their medical insurance, um, and then you know, that treatment cost is going to go through their medic, their medical insurance or their, you know, Medicaid, the, the state and federal government supported insurance for uh, low income families. Um, and then, you know, in a low conflict situation, those, um, those costs would get basically charged back to the school's insurance policy. Okay. Uh, the health insurance policy is probably going to ask for a, a right to subrogate, uh, which if the parents sign, then they lose their, their, their right to sue the school district. And the insurance company either works out a settlement with the school district or they sue the school district for, for the cost. Wow. Actually, I, I dealt with it very little um, in my time with uh, a school. Um, 
Yeah. I had one situation where a student um, left the school and in the parking lot threw a rock and damaged somebody's car. And then the parent of, or the owner of that vehicle was, was trying to get the school to pony up the money for that. And the school said no. Um, but so I don't know. Um, that's why I always say live in a desert. It's just sand. When you throw it, it just kind of dissipates in the wind. Um, we do have a great question that came up in the chat. And I, I want to well, present. Going back to the scenario where you have a kid throwing. So car was on school property. Yes. In the school parking lot. Yes. Okay. And then kid throws a rock and causes damage. So it generally a person, which would include institutions like schools and corporations and, and things like that, they do not have a responsibility to keep a third party from acting. So um, children are generally liable for their own torts. Yeah. In Texas, there are a few special exceptions to that. Um, but I mean, your, your school was, uh, probably right in saying, no, not our, it's not our fault. So we don't have a liability here. I think what happened in that case, Lisa, is the, the person whose car was damaged knew, um, the child, not through the school, but knew the child damaged it and then contacted their parents. And then I think it was just like, a, okay, what are the damages to get the, the dent removed? But yeah. So then the, the school wouldn't be responsible for the third party actions of the child, unless there would have been some foreseeable, um, for example, a student with disabilities, a special education director. Um, and that, you know, might've, had a history of throwing things on a playground or something like that, and then to not properly place that student on a playground or to mitigate that. Or am I thinking too much into that? Um, there is probably not a duty there. Um, okay. But like, I'm actually working on a similar issue right now, and parents are generally not responsible for their child's towards. That's amazing. Yep. Okay. So, but like I said, in Texas, there, there are certain exceptions to that, but they're, they're pretty narrow. Yeah. Okay. Now there is a tort in Texas for negligent supervision of child, um, which would play into this scenario here. If, Possibly, um, but in Texas, that tort is narrowly defined by parent. <laughs> so and there is a there is a legal definition of parent in the in, in the statutes in Texas. So again, like in if someone were facing this issue in Texas, your special education director would not have been the person responsible. Wow. 
Wow. This is, that's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, this is, this is one of the reasons why I advise my students, uh, before the start of the school year to sit down and to assemble questions for their district council, just kind of a, a one-on-one. Um, and, and this would be a question, you know, that would, that might come up, right. Who would be responsible and to have, have that answered ahead of time. Um, so let me run you through this scenario. Superintendent arrives at school the day following that the school has just received the lawsuit about um, from a parent. My child caught COVID at school is in the, you know, alleged in a lawsuit. Superintendent tries to log in and it's like, my password's not working. Tries to get to um, Google Drive. Google Drive's not working and finds out I'm frozen out. I'm named in the lawsuit along with the Board of Education, frozen out of access. So that's happened a couple times. What is probably happening there? Because it, it freaks people out, but what's really probably happening in that situation? Likely what's happening in that situation is that council uh, has instructed IT or a contractor to gather data. Um, it's And it's easiest to do when there's no data being added at the time. Um, so because there's an obligation of parties involved in the lawsuit to not destroy or tamper or alter evidence. And the concept is called spoliation. Uh, so you have a duty not to spoliate evidence. And if you do cause spoliation, then a judge can order sanctions and they can be very severe. Um, there is something called a death penalty sanction, which basically obliterates your case. Like you, you can't use, you can't use evidence. <laughs> uh, it's a very important thing to, it, it's a very important to preserve that data. Uh, up, um, not only up to the point where the lawsuit is filed, but also afterwards as you're creating new data to continue, like in, in discovery, you'll have to continue to provide right. data going forward as it um, as an obligation to, to supplement your discovery responses. So, um, you know, I would caution the, you know, whoever is found that they're locked out, I would, I would caution them not to jump to conclusions just yet <laughs> that, you know, they're, they're probably you're thinking they're going to be escorted out the door with their little cardboard box, but um, probably not what's going on. So, so not out of the realm of possibilities, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, just as you indicated, in 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 the situation uh, where I was talking to the school administrator, uh, what was happening was the school's legal counsel. So they had been informed of of the lawsuit. They immediately contacted a sub agency to come in and meet with IT and basically do a, a, a backup of everything that was on the district's email server, all of that, and then they would operate from that backup. When the, where they would pull information for the, the lawsuit. 
the thing was, it wasn't clearly communicated. So as the soup came in and, you know, other people were kind of like, hey, like I'm having some trouble or the system is, you know, it, it wasn't put out there. And, and so that was part of the uh, communication that didn't come from either the legal firm or briefing with the superintendent or PR. Um, and it can be kind of weird too, because right, if you're, if if that gets out to the media and they're like the district shut its you know internet down or or their servers down for three hours today you know as it, it just seems weird like that doesn't but what is happening is there's this this copy that's made and then from that copy um, things can be harvested and then once the copy's done things can can continue. I remember working as an expert witness with a district that. Uh, after they were served, they came out with a brand new edition, like in hours of a handbook and got it up on their website. And they're like, here's our handbook. And I was like, you know, the, the council I was working with that time was like, I'm not sure this is a handbook. Like, this is a hand, this is not what parents are saying is the handbook. Like they're saying something else was up there a few weeks ago. So mm -hmm. it was this, this trying to afterwards change the fact, but um, so they're trying to capture everything and and have a record of it and in the time that that happens um what so if if you were legal counsel working with some um, organization and they were just about to undergo this kind of temporary freeze of files and this making of a copy how would you tell people that to, so they wouldn't freak out <laughs> like hey you're not going to have access to your your email and your drive for three hours so they're not like, oh my goodness, like I'm in trouble. Like this feels really bad. This has never happened to me before. I'm scared. Like how how would you suggest that that information comes out to people in an organization? So I think one of the the easiest ways to do that is to, or one of the most sensible ways to do that is to call a meeting and explain what's going on during you know, in this meeting at the same time is when you are freezing the system to start, you know, preserving the data so that nobody has any sort of idea that they need to, you know, dump all of these emails. Right. <laughs> right. Something. So, um, but that, that's how I would do it. <laughs> Say, yeah, there's a mandatory in-person meeting in the in the assembly room. So at such Just, time, and and um, you know, about ten minutes into that meeting is you know when your IT or your you know contractor is supposed to start you know locking things down and, and yeah. pulling the data. And that's a great point because that is the step that isn't happening um, on the school side. They're not communicating that out to their employees. So everybody thinks you're going to get fired, or the everybody thinks they're going to get fired. Like they're plans like, for the year. <laughs> they're like, yeah, everything that I ever emailed my NCAA bracket, you know, is you know the the school NCAA bracket. I'm going to get busted for that. I mean, everybody goes to the absolute worst case scenario. Um, mm -hmm. And then they frantically, yeah, try to build up their own defense and preserve whatever they can. So I've seen that as a, as a, as a complete kind of letdown 
of um, how schools should be advised by their not only legal counsel, but maybe their their organizations that they contract with, their state school board associations, or things like this. Of of because they they have these entire departments um, that just work with public relations, right, on different school things or you know school funding or you know also kind of crisis management if there's been. Um, an incident of a, a death in a school or something like that, they contact with these PR agencies on how to make sure, um, you know, the school is is communicating that that out. Um, but when it when things like this happen, and it's new, right? Because how many pandemics have we been through? Like for me, this is only like the seventh or eighth, but for a lot of people, it's our first. And how do you communicate this? So schools are kind of fumbling. And here in Wisconsin, 421 school districts most of those have under a thousand students. So your superintendent is probably your athletic director and maybe overseeing some other things too. So, um, so yeah, this is, this is a step right away of, of talking with legal counsel and saying, we have to let people know what this process is and why it's happening. It's to preserve this, this set of information, um, because right, and it's it's strange, Lisa, because like no one has reported to me that that's how this went down at all. They're all completely into freak out. System is froze. I think I'm in trouble, type of uh, mode. So, um, so that's been my advice: is one to let your um, staff know. Also, if anything happens like this, you know it's happening in the state right now. So if we get named in a lawsuit. This might happen in our district. You might have a limit, a time where limited access to files or whatever. We don't know, but just, and if you tell people ahead of time, they usually handle things better than if you spring it on them in the moment. Um, or if you don't spring it on them in the moment, they just figure it out. It's like, cool. <laughs> it is. And, you know, as a, so as a school safety expert, when I work with districts, one of the things that I, I tell districts is, um, which is kind of an aside, but this is very important is if there's a, a school shooting at your school, um, you know, convey this to staff at the start of your in-service, you're not going to be able to access your classroom or the parking lot that day. Like that's a crime scene. Like all of that will be off and, you know, there'll likely be transportation arranged for you and things like this. And I, I say that after working with districts where um, once the event is completed, people expect to be able to go back to their classrooms and get to their cars and they can't, and, and they really have a substantial negative reaction to that. They've already gone through this traumatic event and now they'll be like, I'll do anything like, you know, you know, to just have my car and just to be able to drive home and things like this. And it's like, no. And so that's where I think, and I'm going to make a point of it in the blog post is to let people know that if this does happen, if the district is a recipient, the, the data, the, the base, there'll be this copy likely made. Um, and that will be guided through the litigation or, or through the attorney has a subset kind of like an IT attorney division, right? Is what we were talking no, about. No, not necessarily. <laughs> Probably okay, not. Well. Um, so there are, in, within the legal industry, there are companies who will, you know, copy this data, put it into somebody a with a thumb drive. So okay. <laughs> and um, if it's if it's quite voluminous with which a school district, I would expect it to be then they will dump that data into, will dump every file into some sort of document management program. And then they will 
at least in Texas, they'll hire licensed attorneys for about $25 an hour to sort through those documents to see what's privileged and what's responsive and what's, you know, irrelevant garbage. Okay. So that's kind of, that's the behind the scenes is this, this data then is being uh, sifted and winnowed and also for freedom of information requests, you know, later. So, okay. Um, so right now, um, we have a plaintiff. We have a parent suing a school district. We have the school district board of education and superintendent. Um, but there's this concept you may be aware of, responsible third party. And this has come up from several of the superintendents I've spoken with. And they said, hey, like we feel that there should be some other people at the table on the defendant side, the county, yeah, human services department, in, at least in Wisconsin, um, at the start of the pandemic and throughout the pandemic, was supposed to give guidance to schools on mask and contact tracing and that. And, and that seemed to happen initially. And then there was a lot of pushback from communities, um, for example, saying, you know, like, you know, my child's uh, attended this basketball game. Now everybody at the basketball game was notified they have to stay home for two weeks or whatever. And, and some of these counties have said, no, we're just, we're not going to do it anymore. District, it's up to you. And in one of my in one of my situations, one of my school administrators showed me that the county just gave him access to the database and said, here, you track it on your own. And so, you know, I'm looking and he can bring up anybody's name and their address and stuff. And I'm like, well, you're not supposed to have that access. Like that's really county reserved access. You could, uh, but you know, he's doing the best he can in that situation. So right now, some school administrators are saying, hey, county health and um, county health services should be part of this for not appropriately informing us. They're also saying the Department of Public Instruction didn't come out with a blanket statement, um, it, or at least their guidance hasn't been sufficient. Basically, they're saying- Is that a state agency? Yes. Okay. Yeah, which, um, which over, oversees all districts um, in Wisconsin, our Department of Public Instruction. So those are the two informally that superintendents are, are, are saying to me, we feel that we haven't received sufficient guidance from these organizations or, we, or that we have we received stronger guidance at the start and then it diminished you know, during, during the pandemic. So um, basically asking, well, what responsibility might they have? So tell us about this whole thing of responsible third party. Well, there, there are two ways uh, to attempt to pin this on, on these other external parties who were not sued by the plaintiff. One way would be for the school district to file a cross claim against the county or against the, the state. Um, and that would bring those parties into the lawsuit. Okay. And they would need to participate in the lawsuit, participate in discovery, and and. The, so, Lisa, that would be the district then filing a cross claim. The district, mm -hmm. okay. Right. So, and in that situation, if the plaintiff recovered, and here we're talking about declaratory and injunctive relief, which is not monetary, but say that the parents were also suing for the past and future medical care of the child, then um, you've got three parties that are potentially on the hook for that judgment. 
um, in whatever percentage proportions that add up to 100. So, okay. so that's one way. The other way is for either the plaintiff or the defendant to designate the county and or the state agency as a responsible third party. So what the responsible third party is, it doesn't bring that party, that doesn't bring that organization into the lawsuit. They don't become a defendant. Um, it, it, it's what's called the empty chair. Empty chair, okay. Yeah. So the responsible third party is um, the, the name defendant is going to you know, try and shift as much of the blame on the responsible third party. And so when the decision goes to a jury, you'll have, you know, plaintiff, defendant, third party, you know, county, and then state agency. So the liability gets divided up between those four entities. And so let's say that the plaintiff recovers a million dollars for the medical care of their child. Okay. That's what the jury awards. But that is divided into 30% against the school district, 30% against the county, 30% against the state and 10% against the parent. So what you basically have is the parent can only recover $300,000 in that scenario because that it was only the, the defendant in the lawsuit was only 30% responsible for the situation. So the empty chair, you cannot recover from an empty chair. Okay. So do you anticipate that this will be a strategy that um, that defendants will pursue? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, yes. So, um, yeah, I... do that when I can. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, I think this guy over here might have had something to do with it, but I'm not suing him. You can, though, please. <laughs> you but know, it's I been, you know, I, I we talked about this in in a recent class. So yeah. when I when I teach my classes, and, and then I get kind of the, the real life, what is actually happening. Um, and again, some of my students uh, are school leaders where they receive these lawsuits. So they're living this, right? So they're giving me and everybody else, um, you know, the what is happening side of this. Now with, with that, of course, you know, they're measuring their words, right? I'm saying don't, you know, just because we're in a classroom, don't lay out your, your counsel's, you know, legal plan. But if there's anything that you want to share, you know, personally, maybe some experiences of of how this is impacting you as a school leader and or things that have been made public, you know, through the media or or other things that would, would be out there. Sure. Like, that's OK. Um, but um, but yeah, this is interesting because 
they don't bring this up. And I'm the first one usually to bring up this since we talked, right? I didn't know this either about the empty chair, the third party. And, and to me, it's substantial because if I was asked to be an expert witness, anybody listening, I'm not probably going to accept this, but um, I would immediately go to the counties because that was the clear path last year in our state of the 72 yeah. counties to give guy in they and they did for a while. And, um, and then also well, we're our a very department. different situation here in Texas. <laughs> so uh, yeah, state by state. And, and the fact that, you know, one of, one of our counties turned over basically the keys to the system to a school administrator saying, Hey, if you want to contact trace and contact people, here's how we do it at a County level, just log in with this. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, I'm not sure. One, I would do this if I were you, but two, like I also get it because if you're not doing it, who is doing it? But so there's some weird responsibility there of this the superintendent of the small district taking on this contact tracing through a system that he's not really authorized to have access to. Um, but let's so let's get into this question. So how might a school district convince the fact finder who is a judge or a jury, if I'm correct on that, a fact finder, um, that it practiced due diligence? and was informed when it made decisions on how to mitigate the effects of COVID-19 in the school setting. So how, how might the school say, we we got information um, that we felt was, was credible, was current. Um, we put into place practices that we, we thought were best practices. Like you know, nobody's been through this before. There isn't a, a standard for this. We didn't train for this in college. And um, so we think we did steps that were appropriate to mitigate COVID-19, even though the parent is suing and saying, my child contracted COVID at school, you didn't do enough. Um, so so what could be a school's argument that they put together saying, we did the best we could. Like, we, we thought we did a pretty good job. So I'm going to put some parameters on your, uh, on your scenario there. So for... We're going to go with the parents are suing for negligence and there are the, the parent, the plaintiff has to show that there was the, the, the defendant, the school district superintendent, whoever had a duty. Um, they had to, um, they have to show that there was a breach of that duty. And then they have to show that the breach was the proximate cause of the injury. Okay. Um, proximate cause is kind of like the, you can kind of think of it as like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like it's the last thing to happen to make that injury happen. So, and the, the plaintiff, has to show that by a preponderance of the evidence. So that's just like a little more likely than not. Um, it's a very low standard. It's, um, you know, it's, it's nothing like the, the criminal side. Um, beyond a reasonable doubt is a, is a very high standard. Um, so the, the, the plaintiff has the, they have the responsibility and the burden to show all of those things. Okay. The school district can sit there and not put on a case at all um, 
And really? Okay. Yeah, if the plaintiff doesn't, you know, doesn't support their case adequately, then, um, yeah, you can actually move for a directed verdict after the, after the plaintiff's case is, is over. So that's, that's one thing that can happen. So, th so Lisa, that would look like a parent saying school didn't do enough, uh, in, in their legal counsel and, and, but they can't say what the school actually did right or, or what would that look like where it's i guess where it's so weak of an argument the defense could just say can we just <laughs> this doesn't make sense like can we just like end it now i mean what would that no. and this is um so like with with a negligence claim you have to show proximate cause so that child if you if you think about that child being going to school, maybe being exposed there. But, you know, say this child is also in a household with one parent. If that parent is not isolating, let's say that parent is going to work, then the parent has exposure. How do you know where the virus came from? Right. So that's where the proximate cause argument can fall apart and it's a required element. So yeah, that, that's how you can get to a directed verdict. So, um, but to expand on that, let's say the, the plaintiff has, has a pretty good, you know, has put on a, a pretty good and convincing case. Um, the school district would probably put on evidence of what, you know, what advice did they review? Where was the the source of that advice? What data did they review? You know, um, what, uh, when was this discussed by the school board? You know, when was this on the agenda? Was it presented in a public session? Was there public feedback on it? Um, okay. So those are some of the ways that they would show that um, you know, they were doing what was reasonable. So um, because the, the duty that the school board and the superintendent have, you know, has to, it has to be reasonable. Um, it can't, you know, there is, there is no way to keep every single kid from, right. from getting right. a virus. There's a, something called what assume there's assume some harm, right? I mean, like if you were to drive a car, right? Assumption of risk. Assumption of risk, right? Okay. There, there's some assumption of risk that, yeah, if you're in a facility and interacting with other students and even yeah. though whatever measures and HVAC systems and things that, right. right. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So, so it's called directive verdict where the, the fact finder, which would be the judge could say, um, just the, the judge, it, it could not go to a jury. Okay. A directive verdict doesn't go to a jury. It goes to the judge because it would be a, a judgment as a matter of law instead of a judgment based on the weight of facts. 
So. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I, I gotcha. So that's good. No, I was that's... laughing at the comment that you just posted from Bull Rush. It was like, oh. oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a rowdy audience on the on the side. So it's kind of a, so in my as as an aside, um, in my my book, which is coming out of velocity of information, I was talking with my publisher and we're kind of talking about how to market it. And my publisher is like, you know, like 30% of the people who follow you are like survivalists and preppers. I'm like, yeah, there's an awesome audience, right? So and we have to, and then you have Bull Rush, who's kind of like both. And then just like, he's, he's edgy. He's, and he lives near Houston, by the way, this is a fact. Okay. Um, because he does have a signed bottle from Joe and he sent me a picture of it. So he went and, and got a body, a bottle of whiskey from Joe and had him sign it. Um, so yeah, you'll know Bull Rush because he has a cedar fence around his property that he put up himself in the greater Houston area. So he's very proud of it. Um, okay. and he has a lot of insurance on it. So I don't know what that means in several cameras and things like that, but a cedar fence, it's very high value property. So this whole concept of tort, what does tort mean? Like a lot of people are like, okay, tort law, but what, what is tort? We only hear about civil law case. What is tort? mean t-o-r-t what does that basically mean so uh, a tort is a it's a legal harm that is not derived from a contract uh is you know that's that's sort of like the the first layer of the definition okay um torts can be defined by common law uh which will generally extend back to back several hundred years to england and you know, they've just developed by tradition um, and through case law. Um, so, like the the tort of negligence doesn't it doesn't vary from state to state. There can be different types of negligence, but everybody's got a general negligence cause of action. Um, and basically the only thing that differs is you'll have different, you'll have individual states with um, case law that defines the tort of negligence, but it's all the same definition, like all over the place. The three things that I told you are, that's it. <laughs> okay, we'll get so, to those three. You can, have, you can have torts that are created by state law. Um, the, um, one, one here in Texas is called the Texas tort. I can't remember. I think it's TTCA is the acronym. I can't remember what the C is, but anyway, it allows a person to sue a governmental entity for, negligence like okay. it'll allow a, a person to sue a police department for fault in a car accident okay so but generally torts are they either have uh these are either result in physical harm or they result in harm to like your reputation so slander and libel are also torts Those of you watching at home, 
my mic is above my keyboard, so it takes away my sight of keyboard. And you're like, Dave, that shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't, right? But in high school, in Miss Reem's typing class, um, I always look down at the keys when I typed. So it's kind of just the way that things are for me. So um, there's no need to contact me. I am okay, even though if I'm not spelling all right, um, I am coherent. Yeah, I'm doing fine. So, uh, Lisa, foreseeability. So, thank you for defining tort. Um, so, so we're not talking you know, criminal activity right here. When, um, what is foreseeability? This word has come up a lot. My interpretation of it, and then you can say, Dave, it's interesting. It's not accurate, but it's interesting. Foreseeability <laughs> means... Um, so, here's an example I use in Wisconsin with my aspiring superintendents. And foreseeability example would be, all right, to, we're, we're starting to get reports on our phone, on the news and whatever, that tomorrow it's going to sleet. So it's going to be freezing rain tomorrow. So um, you would expect then in their school tomorrow that the school district would would be monitoring this and perhaps they w- they're monitoring then the walkways outside of the school. They would get out in sand and salt and do whatever they need it to make the walkways safe or else like, you know, put up, you know, slippery notices, you know, those little signs or whatever is, you know, slippery one way, whatever. So yeah, they would do something. And if they don't do that, it would be called um, that they were negligent um, with foreseeability. And and so my, I think my definition here is um, that they, so they should be able to foresee the harm, right? They have plenty of notice it's in Wisconsin. They should know that the sidewalk is going to ice over. There's these sleet warnings. So could a parent look at this and say, listen, school district, foreseeability. Every night on the news, David Muir, ABC News, every headline in the newspaper for the last year, foreseeability. Um, if you're not wearing a mask in a school, if you're not doing whatever processes to sanitize high contact areas, but probably more so wearing a mask you're more likely to contract um, COVID. So knowing that, like, you should have taken these measures, meaning you should have passed uh, school policy or at least a school ordinance saying people have to wear masks. Foreseeability. Is this a part of litigation you think could come into play here of saying you just should have known better, right? Like, this, this shouldn't be a surprise to you that if you don't have masks in schools, kids are and staff are going to catch COVID at higher levels than masked schools, I guess. And I don't, I haven't seen those comparisons anywhere, but just. So foreseeability is a big part of the negligence tort. Okay. Um, and while you don't have to, uh, defendant doesn't have to be able to foresee the exact mechanism or timing of an injury that occurred as a result of the breach of a duty. Um, Foreseeability is like, what are, it's not every possible outcome, but what are some, what are some likely outcomes that have a fair chance of happening? Um, that's, that's basically what foreseeability is. And um, if the harm 
the injury that happens. Um, if like right before somebody breaches their duty, if the harm was foreseeable, was something that, you know, you would think in your, your cost benefit analysis of, you know, are we going to require masks? Um, that, okay, it's, it, you know, we have a potential that um, kids are going to get COVID, you know, but maybe that's weighed against the statistical severity that kids generally get COVID. Um, but of course that, you know, we found out that that changes with mutations and whatnot. Um, but it's based on um, at the time of, of the breach. So, so at the time of the breach. So let's say a parent, a parent files um, a lawsuit and says, my child contracted um, COVID on September 25th. So that's the time when school had been in, in session for three weeks. Um, does, does that, how does foreseeability play into that? And maybe the plaintiff's attorney, the parent's attorney saying, you had all summer to prepare for this school district. <laughs> you, um, in this again is, is a school district that didn't have a mask mandate. Um, would that potentially be like a really a strong point for a parent and, and their, their attorney of saying, come on, like this yeah. shouldn't be a surprise for you. Right. Like you had time, right. I mean, time to get people know, trained. Let's say that it was September of 2020 when the kid got infected, we knew the pandemic was going on by March of 2020. You know, they had you know, five months, four and a half months before school started to figure out what the action plan was. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a decent argument. Is that one you usually see as an attorney? Do you see the foreseeability argument come forward, or is it, or am I kind of reaching at straws here? Because oh, no, it's you're, not, you're not reaching. Okay. No, no. Okay. in fact, I'm like up to my eyeballs in two cases right now where um, there are several issues regarding negligence, but. A couple of them are whether or not someone had a duty. And then even if that person had a duty, was the injury foreseeable? Um, right. So, yeah, no, it's it, it comes out. Okay. Well, so, um, like, in... In... Um, Car accidents, for example. Right. Um, you know, we we know that texting and driving is is dangerous, and it takes your attention away from the road and away from traffic. And so, right. if you are not paying attention to the road, then it's foreseeable that you could uh, be in an accident. 
Now, yeah. it doesn't matter if you rear end somebody or if you cross the median, the you know, the center line. You don't have to know which way you injure someone. Okay. It's just it's you know a likely outcome that if you're driving and and you're texting and not paying attention, it is a likely outcome that an accident will happen and that you may hurt someone. So I think to me, Lisa, I mean, that's an important point um, because this is something that school administrators don't have addressed in their professional development. Um, When they're obtaining their degrees, their professional organizations aren't telling this, even their legal counsels aren't telling them about, you know, these, these kind of core concepts like foreseeability. The other part is, let's say again, it is the third week of September there's such there's this thing called entropy of of systems, right? Entropy meaning systems fatigue over time. Um, it's think about a vehicle. You know, the longer you have it, the more things kind of go wrong with it or rust or things like that. And you have to keep doing things to maintain it. The third week in September, you should not have entropy in a system, right? Your school system, your professional development, all of that that's gone into place shouldn't be eroded by the third week of September for that school year. So, as a school, you can't. Um, I, I would use it, I guess, as a defense, but entropy, you can't claim entropy for a system that you would expect would be still viable and resilient a, a month in. Meaning, I guess, if you did professional development um, in the end of August and you were um, doing your cleaning and, and whatever, your mask, and... I guess I'm not sure where I'm going with that. This is a part of the show where it starts to wander a little bit. It's like me trying to uh, to play soft or, or uh, volleyball at, at uh, UW Superior in the summer of 1999, where I put my my arms out and one guy says, "Hey, you're walking the elephant," which apparently is when you just kind of like keep your arms out anticipating someone's going to hit the ball to you. But um, but okay, so foreseeability, negligence. You, there's three parts of it, negligence. Let's make those clear for well. you. <laughs> There's three elements of negligence. Three elements. They each have ooh, little bitty parts. So they have nuances. Foreseeability is, is one of them. Okay. And then proximal harm and what was the third? Proximate cause. Proximate cause. Okay. Uh, so somebody has a duty. Somebody breached the duty. The breach of that duty was the proximate cause of the harm. So it could be, um, yeah, a one-on-one aide working with a student. That aide has a, a duty to wear a mask, um, does not wear the mask, do, is positive for COVID. The student uh, contracts COVID. You can make an argument. Proximal cause. This aide was with the student. Sixty percent of the students day, and the student and within um, close proximity. In close proximity. Okay. Right. Got it. Um, so you don't have like with proximate in that situation, you know, where I, you know, earlier where I described, you've got this kid going to school, they have one parent, you know, where does the exposure come from? You know, you don't have to prove something 100%. So in the, in the example that you just gave, uh, that would be a good way for a plaintiff to build their, um, their approximate cause argument is showing, you know, okay, this this student was with this person for, you know, four and a half hours a day for, you know, the two weeks before he was diagnosed with COVID. 
we know this this teacher wasn't wearing a mask. We know that they were within six feet of each other because they work one-on-one, generally at the same desk. You know, those are all things that will um, move the needle on proximate cause towards the plaintiff. Okay. So all things, if you're the plaintiff, if you're the parent in this that you'd want to know and want to document as you're presenting this argument into um, the court, right into the judge, you'd want to have this information. Right. Okay. Um, so what implications? water. <laughs> what? I need a drink of water. All right. So this, is gonna get, this is going to get a drink of water. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go here solo and I'm going to tell you about the greatest book ever written about the $3 billion school safety industry, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. Um, this book comes out, it, well, it's in hard copy. You can get it now from places that sell books, right? Um, $30 hard copy. I wrote this, it came out in 2019. But this is a phenomenal book. Gives you the inside workings of what happens for school safety decisions and why you need to question your school board and your school districts when they're making million-dollar decisions on putting bollards and cameras and things like that in front of, you know, in front of buying committees and saying, "Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to put bollards in." Doesn't make sense. School of Errors: Rethinking School Safety in America. And if you read it, if you read it, please leave a review. We're up to 43 reviews. I'm hoping we get to 50 by the time the velocity of information comes out. Lisa's back, substantially hydrated right now. So we are going to get into our, our last few questions here. But so Lisa, what implications? Let's talk about board meetings. So um, what if a board hasn't properly... Um, post at their meeting, right? They have to post it so many hours, days in advance, their agenda, what they're going to talk about in open session, closed session, or if they don't conduct their meeting in proper ways, again, which have happened in Wisconsin. Uh, people have contacted me or administrators have said, Dave, like, here's a link to our board meeting, which is recorded online live stream. And I don't think this was conducted by proper... What, so Robert's rules of orders is like, you know, first motion, second motion, and things like that. And one of the things, too, is there's been a lot of turnover on school boards. People um, during the time of COVID have said, you know, I've been harassed as a school board member because I vote one way or another. And, and one school board member said people came to my house and dumped garbage at the end of my driveway <laughs> and things like this. And, and so like, I'm not running again. So you have a lot of new people on school boards. Um, and, and, and so these mechanisms of school boards run kind of clunky because people don't necessarily know how to conduct a meeting. So what happens in all of this if a parent or, you know, can come back and say, hey, this meeting wasn't properly noticed. Like they, the school board talked about mask at the meeting, but on the agenda, it only said like COVID discussions. It didn't say like mass mandate or anything like that. Or they ended the meeting um, improperly, or they didn't give time for input from the audience or something like that. Um, what, how can that, I guess, impact uh, litigation like this? Or is it substantial or is it like that's kind of secondary or what could be like a really big mistake that could happen out of a improperly conducted meeting that could impact this? So I'm going to use my lawyer answer. <laughs> okay. It depends. So 
in the several examples that you gave, you're going to have to weigh, okay, how much, how much harm did that really do? Like if you ended a meeting improperly, you know, did that really have an impact on the mask mandate? Probably not. Um, but something like not allowing for public feedback uh, right. on that, that would potentially be not be favorably a jury. Um, so it just, it, it just kind of depends. Um, so like ending a meeting improperly isn't going to have a big effect, but not properly noticing your meetings, that's a problem. So, um, so, so what's happened, um, so what's happened, Lisa, is some school boards haven't properly noticed this. And if you really dig down deep into it, like you won't get this on public record, but you can kind of assume that it's because they don't want a contentious audience, right? They don't want people being vocal with them. And, and, and so they're, they're trying to, to eliminate that because it's become very uncomfortable for a position that you might be making $3,000 a year for. Um, and this is also one of the re well, on uh, September 29th, the national association of school boards sent a letter to um, attorney general, uh, Mary Garland saying, help us out. Like school board meetings are becoming out of control. AG Garland on October 4th sent a letter to the FBI saying, in 30 days, I want you to come up with a plan for how school boards can more safely conduct meetings where people aren't harassed, school board members and things like that. So, um, so yeah, so, so some of these things aren't being properly noticed. And so I guess if, as you've said, right, if you end a meeting kind of clunky and it's not per Robert's rules of orders, that's not as big necessarily as, if you put out an agenda and the agenda doesn't indicate that you're going to make a decision during the open session of the meeting on mask or no mask, would that be correct? What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. sorry. I was responding to, to Mr. Bacon. Uh, okay. Oh, Bacon will do. So, so I think, if you're if you're a district and your purpose, I, I guess there you'd have to say, as a plaintiff, as a parent, I would say you're purposely having a meeting where you're not doing this in public discussion with mask and no mask, like it's right. it's not on your agenda, like that is a mistake, right? Like it That's seems like you're you're trying to limit input from your okay, yeah, that would definitely be problematic, especially. Um, because school boards are generally subject to some sort of open meetings provision, some sort of transparency provision, you know, anything where you are not giving notice, you're not giving opportunity for constituents to shape policy. It's not a good look in litigation. Right. So, and, and, and yeah, um, having angry parents or angry citizens in your school board meeting is hard. That's part of the job. And that's, and that's the part which has become complicated. 
and this is actually kind of after the fact of with the October 4th memo from Attorney General, um, you know, um, Merrick Garland to the FBI saying, and actually in the memo, and I, I had this in a previous podcast, maybe a week or two ago, in the memo, he's, he states to the FBI, um, in 30 days, which would be beyond November 4th, um, you need to advise districts on how they will um, obtain and preserve evidence of threatening behavior, which basically I interpreted as, and I talk with my superintendents about this, and I say, basically what they're telling you is record your school board meetings, like record the people in the audience. Like have them come up and say their name and address and record everything that they do and, and all this stuff. I said, which I'm not sure is the look you want to go for, but you know, this is, this is kind of where we're at. Well, I mean, the, I, I think that recording those meetings, including the public comment is that's transparency. Um, so I think that having someone state their address might, there's a good argument there for an invasion of privacy, but having them state their name, I, I really, yeah. I don't see a problem with that. So, um, it, yeah. It, it gives more visibility as to what is happening in those meetings. We have here in Houston, we have city council meetings that are uh, live streamed and uh, recorded. And that's exactly what's going on. You, you sign up for public comment and right. you know, your, your name is, is on the list. And when you get called, you say your two minutes and you know, that becomes part of the record. Uh, that should also be part of that public comment should also be part of the meeting minutes. And you can't just have, okay. That's good. Um, you know, this, this mass yelling going on, you know, it's, it's got to be something, something organized. So getting people on a, you know, creating a list of people to testify if that's in your bylaws, you know, that's a really good way to do it. Um, explaining at the beginning of the meeting you're setting expectations at the beginning of the meeting you know we are obligated to take minutes so when it is your turn to speak uh, we'll ask you to state and spell your name for our secretary or parliamentarian and you know then we'll ask you to uh you know state your opinion or make your argument or ask your question so you mentioned that the the public comment should be part of the minutes. And I know a lot of districts that don't do that. They'll just say this person present it, but then whatever they present it isn't documented. <laughs> so that's that's a good point. And that's something I've been sharing with my uh, superintendents is to say, and one of the superintendents said that his administrative assistant who attends the meetings just said, well, we've never done it this way, and it's a lot of time to record that and put it into the minutes. And I said, well, but that's the only evidence you have, right? That's your your board minutes of what happened when this person presented. You just don't put, you know, this person presented um, and during the public comment section. I mean, right. it just doesn't, it's just, it just doesn't cut it. Um, okay, so that's, that is really... Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. So one of the things I've I've interpreted from the change now 
of districts saying state your name and your address is if people state their address, they have to fear that they'll be doxxed. And right. then and that's happened. Like I know yeah. I know situations close to me within 20 miles of where I live where that's happened. Someone now has said that and then people go to their house. Um so that becomes a deterrent. Um and as you so it's, it's tricky, right? What if what if a legal what if the school board's attorney says, okay, people, whenever they present now, um, we want, we, you, you can tell them to present, identify themselves and identify where they live because you want to have them identify that they live in the district, I guess. Um, is that, is that a practice you would see as legitimate or a practice that could be challenged? Or what if someone said, no, I'm not, I'll give you my name, but I'm not going to tell you where I live. And you know, during a recorded meeting, I don't know the intricacies of that. Okay. Um, but like, I could, without getting into privacy concerns, I would think that somebody uh, at least signing an affidavit stating that they do live within the district before they get up to, to testify. Okay. I don't see a problem with that. And with an affidavit, they're going to have to show their identification unless the notary personally knows them. Okay. So, um, so, so I would see that as a step that should happen before they come up to the microphone yeah. that they shouldn't have to. Okay. And that's, well, and that's like, it, with the Houston City Council, they allow for sign up like days in advance of the of the meeting. So okay, but yeah. I mean, so, I think there is there is a good point that you know, yeah, it should be somebody who is a constituent in the district, unless it's someone who is being invited to you know, provide comment on, on something. Like if you had um, an infectious disease specialist coming to, to talk by invitation right. of the board, then, you know, no, you don't necessarily have, you know, this is a, it's akin to having an expert witness. Um, you know, no, you don't have to find a disease specialist who lives within the school district. Um, but there are people so, who are school board meetings that aren't their own. That, yeah, that's somebody with way too much time on their hands. And I mean, I can I can understand that politically why that would be important to someone. But so this is interesting because we've kind of seen this, I guess what I would call stacking the deck or people coming into board meetings who don't live in those areas, but do have a interest in the topic. So, um, and then they can come off of saying, listen, um, I am considering purchasing property here, something like that. So they try to, to give a validation for why they're giving input into this meeting, but um, okay. Yeah, they wouldn't have, I don't think that they would have to be allowed to give public comment. So they could certainly walk in and sit and be in the meeting, but I don't think there's any obligation to give them the floor. So 
Lisa, um, what is a freedom of information request? And like, so let's say a parent was to to get this from a school. Freedom of, of information request. Um, I, I guess what is what is that? What might be something a parent would request from a school? So, or, or a newspaper, for example. Oh, sure. It's it's mostly used by by journalists. Um, and the Freedom of Information Act is a it's a federal law that uh, protects it, um, basically protects freedom of the press and that um, and gives a check on governmental entities uh, so that there is transparency and the press can report on it. But that's not the only thing that it's used for. Within the states, they each state generally has their own law that also imposes that sort of transparency onto state, municipal, county, um, you know, governmental agencies and entities. So, a parent in this situation might ask for something like the agendas from the school board meetings since, you know, pardon me, since January of 2020. Okay. Um, so that's, that's one way they could get the information. But once this suit has been filed and served, they're gonna have another avenue to get the information and that's through discovery. But, you know, there's, there are, and you know this from, from being a school administrator, there's lots of data that's available to the public and there's lots of data that's, that's private because it involves individual students. So they, you know, wouldn't be able to get like how many, you know, they wouldn't be able to get how many times was you know, Mary Smith or Joe Jones written up for not wearing a mask. Okay. But they might be able to get how many total write-ups have there been in between September 1 and October 15th of 2021. Sure. Without having, sure. you know, any sort of individual data on it. So, yeah. Or so identifying data. They can't get down to the kind of the individual level, but they could get into like how many, how many times have you, yeah, infractions or, um, oh. it, and there could be, um, so fr uh, freedom of, of information requests with that. So let's say that a district did professional development on COVID um, prevention to their staff. Would that be something that could be obtained through freedom of information? Quite likely, uh, okay. anything like the um, the you know the scheduling requests, any emails that were sent out to the staff and teachers okay. about the yeah. you know, before the meeting, things like um, PowerPoint presentations or handouts that were given during the meeting, uh, things like that would probably be available. Okay. So what I'm seeing right now in Wisconsin, uh, Lisa, and I've shared this um, with my 
my, you know, superintendents, we, we've gone through case studies, like, you know, newspaper articles, but some districts are saying, okay, one, um, they're either not responding to a freedom of information request. They're just ignoring it. Remember, you know, the old, da, 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 it's not happening. Like we're ignoring it. Like eventually you'll go away. And so that's been happening. And the second is, okay, we will respond to this. We'll help, you know, we'll, we'll provide this to you, but it'll cost you $27,000. And the person's like, what? Like, I can't afford that. That's crazy. That's insane. Um, so there are these two aspects which are happening. And then there's this, there's this, um, pro, there's this thing called the Wisconsin Transparency Project. So it's a small legal team in Wisconsin. They exclusively uh, center on helping um, to make sure that the open records and meetings laws are enforced. But like, that's it, right? There's really nobody else on the side of that. So what's happening is one is districts simply don't respond. Not just, not only districts, but like government entities, the county health department, so we're not responding to you and there's really nothing you can do about it. You can appeal it, but nothing's going to happen. Um, and well, I mean, they can likely sue on it they could, um, in okay. order to compel the, compel the release. Um, so, but that takes money. So it takes, so right. And even the Wisconsin Transparency Project, for example, isn't free. Like you'd have to, you have some costs you'd have to incur to get some assistance there. Um, so, so I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this as a very routine practice now, something I didn't see in 20 years, in the last 20 years, I'm seeing now in the last two years is districts responding of saying, Yes, like, but for us to do this, it'll cost this huge amount of money. Let's say $20,000. Um, let's say a parent is trying to say how many staff and students um, were out because of COVID. Just a number, right? So you're not getting into group data or you're not trying to identify students by age level or disability or anything like that. Um, in, a, in a district response, $20,000. So what's the deal with that? Like, um, because I'm aware that a district can say, we have to have a person who's trained in confidentiality and our tech system and the integrity of it. And they have to go through and they have to redact information and stuff like that. But um, I'm seeing this clearly as a barrier. And do you see this in your work? And then also like, how might you navigate if this is the response, which most people will probably give up at of saying, okay, like here's a $20,000 bill for us to maybe give you information, which will be helpful. And person's like, well, that's crazy, right? Like, how do you how do you work around when this is not? I guess it's become a legal tactic. I would say I've seen it enough now to become identified as a legal tactic by a school district to say, "Well, we'll hit them up with a high freedom of information request fee." So the way that states can avoid this is by putting limitations on what the governmental entity can charge for certain types of data. You know, maybe it's, you charge 10 cents per page if you're printing it out on paper or, you know, for every gigabyte of data, you know, it's X amount of dollars. Um, so those are some ways to, to combat that. Um, I think that people who are making this request have, I mean, they've got a pretty good justification for uh, 
for either suing under the statute or there could be a process of going to the attorney general's office to, to complain about um, the invoice. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, I mean, there may be, there may be some, there may be another avenue besides, besides suing under the, the open record statute, you know, in whatever it, you were saying something, Lisa, Previously, when we talked about something like asking, is it gigabytes or terabytes or or trying to narrow your request down, at least to make it um, on face validity seem reasonable if it was examined by a third party? Um, right, right. Um, so, you know, in the example that you gave about asking how many days, you know, faculty, staff, and students were out because of COVID. So, you know, the, the district, one thing I wanted to point out was, you know, the district may not be tracking the exact reason of why somebody was um, absent. You know, it may be, you know, as far as faculty and staff goes, it, it may be, okay, were you using sick leave or PTO? And, you know, that's the extent of it. And for the kids, it would be, you know, was this an excused or an unexcused absence? Right. You know, and so the that specific data may not be something they're tracking. And the school district would have no obligation to create that kind of data. Um, you know, barring some, you know, mandate that came from the county or the state. Right. So if they're saying you know, how many kids were out with COVID or something and, and you're not required to track that or report that, you could be like, we don't have to try to aggregate that information because it's not required that we report that anywhere and it's not something we document in our systems. Right. But if they did document, they needed to cough it up. They need to cough it up. So... So as we get into the um, the ninth inning here of this, um, which has been awesome, and, and thank you so much for everybody over in the the comments. Um, Old Humble Distilling Company has been vibrant in the comments. Uh, Moose's Gal's Corner, John Steele from Seattle, and our friend Bacon from Inglewood and Mictibis um, from Mictibis Land which is a sovereign country, by the way. It has a weird tax structure, though. Um, so John Steele, yes, John Steele. No, no laws protect us from people who have not respect for the laws or no respect. Your right against unwarranted search doesn't actually stop a cop from illegally searching your car. That's from uh, Joe at Old Humble. So, yes. Um, yeah, that's why I only ride a horse. Gave up on a car about four years ago. So <laughs> we'll see how it applies. I don't know. Probably the same thing. I probably didn't get myself ahead ahead in this. But so Andrew S is asking the really hard hitting question. <laughs> it's this is um participating in an online class tonight. We'll need to come back. So so yeah. Um Mictibus is uh, picking up a side degree in martial arts, but it's online. So the thing is, you know, I'm not against online instruction. I just don't know how well it transfers into like a martial arts. He's up to a blue belt right now, just in online instruction uh, or, or destruction. He's taken out a lot of things in his house 
um, including a ceiling to floor lamp that was in his uh, living room. So with a, with a sidekick. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, some of these things I think have to be authentic, but I mean, I guess maybe we'll just... hold the boards that we've got to break, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, who, who wants to do that? Right. Um, yes. He has a, um, a, a workbench um, with a, um, yeah, some kind of vice apparatus on that. Um, okay. Okay. I don't know. I, I just, I, you know, Again, I mean, there's some part of the authentic experience which I think needs to to be there. But, but he's a hard worker, so I don't. I'm not trying to bring down what he's doing. It's kind of innovative. Just saying, before you put that into practice, um, I probably would would try to to do some authentic application with your martial arts degree. Um, so, all right. Oh wait, he just uh, messaged me. He said it's not martial; it's martial artists who paint pictures. So that's a different angle on it, right there. So he's actually like a martial artist who's making paintings. So I guess you don't have to be violent in that regard. Well, that's so, cool. Are you using like karate chops to paint pictures? <laughs> it's so new to me, Lisa. I don't know. Um, this is yeah. I have to find out after the show what is going on. Yeah, I'm. I'm really curious. <laughs> Martial artist paints picture. It's a headline so, in this newspaper. I'm trying to imagine Bob Ross, like in his a much more angry. Um, um, yes. Now motivated he did Ross. beat the devil out of his brushes when he cleaned them. So. Wow. Yeah. My my uh, my youngest daughter, by the way, uh, created a diorama of an 1800s village, which included modern military figures um, that she that she uh, glued onto the board, and then also included a very wide road, which proportional to the houses was about a 75 foot wide road, which would have gone through town which made it very hard to then kind of arrange the houses in a sensible manner of trying to, I said, you have to come up with a side story here of why this was such a poor example of city planning. back <laughs> in the This was the one town where they initially put the road in first before they did anything else. And then they just decided to just build substantially far away from this road, which still the houses seemed to come up, remarkably close to this road a good learning process so she actually said we have to have some form of government in this image so that's where the soldiers came out and i said well you could have had a post office too it was too late at that point yeah we were full paul revere and war of 1812 going on um so okay parents we get down to this lawsuit parents suing a school district hey you didn't keep my kids safe from covid what's their strongest argument I think it's a policy argument is um, arguing that the district should have should have had a reasonable policy and should have been enforcing it. And wherever the breakdown was there, that's probably going to be the strongest, their strongest point. Um, I think their weakest point is the proximate cause. Okay. The, 
and you know, unless you have, you know, a situation where you can explain that, you know, this student had close contact with this person for this amount of time. Granted, we know with COVID that that's, you know, within six feet for about 15 minutes. Right. So it's, it's not that long, but, you know, the, the more time, the more exposure to, to one person or to school personnel or to fellow students in some way, um, that, that builds that proximate cause prong. But, you know, the, the defendant school district can come back and say, you know, look, we, we know that your child also participated in gymnastics or in right. chess club or, you know, has uh, other siblings who, you know, he's in close proximity with that have been out in the world. Um, and, you know, again, for parents or extended family or anybody else who's living in the home. So um, there, there are certain ways to, you know, tear down that, that prong of the argument. The defendant only has to show that the plaintiff didn't meet their burden on one element so the has to show that okay. they do meet their burden on all of the elements of the three with negligence. That's, that's right. what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Right. And so, okay. So I think you kind of framed it then. If you're the school district, how do you prevail in this lawsuit? Where'd you go? <laughs> like I said, I, I think that the proximate cause prong is, is the strongest point for the defendant. I also think that um, the reasonableness of you know imposing a duty on that, like the, the the duty that's imposed, has to be has to be reasonable. Um, you know, you can't have a school district be responsible for preventing everyone in the school district from getting COVID or everybody that walks through their doors from getting COVID. Um, so I think that the more that a school district can show that they, um, the policy was carefully crafted, uh, show the process that they went through in order to arrive at the policy the process that they went through to educate faculty and staff about how to enforce the policy and then, you know, showing as much, you know, evidence as they can to show that it actually was enforced and, you know, that they, they did, they did what was reasonable, you know, it wasn't everything that they could have done. um, But that's, that's not the standard. Because I think you were telling me, yeah, it's it's reasonable, and and if they were saying, hey, like we we were listening to the um, FDA, the National Institute of Health, the World Health Organization, our local um, hospital, and we were getting guidance from these areas, and it, it shows a due diligence and that they were trying to inform themselves. Um, so here was something I thought was was really fascinating when you were sharing this with me 
um, in a previous discussion, and you're saying, you know, a school district could also look at their financial records and bring those up as evidence. And for example, say, listen, we've spent three times as much this year on hand sanitizers, soap, um, disinfectants than we spent in the last year and the year before that and the year before that. So our financial records can show these expenditures, which indicate, you know, we, we have done mitigation efforts. I thought that was fascinating. I never thought about that before. Is there anything else where there might be this hidden, um, data, which might support a school district that, you know, is, is something where people probably wouldn't look initially? Um, I think, you know, thinking back to when I was a kid, I remember going to a school assembly and they talked about dental health. They talked about brushing and flossing your teeth. And when we went back to class, we each got a tablet to chew. And when you got finished chewing the tablet, you could see where you had missed brushing and then they'd give you a toothbrush and toothpaste and, you know, (laughs) you'd go brush all that off your teeth. Um, I think similarly, you're going to find, you're going to find, curricula for the you know, training you did for the teachers and also curricula for the students. You're teaching them, you know, this is why, this is why we're wearing masks. This is why we're using hand sanitizer. Um, you know, this is, this is why we're not doing, you know, such and such activity. Um, is is because of this virus and at an age appropriate level, you know, teaching them about about a virus and how it's transmitted. Um, so I think you could also look to those programs and materials to show that you know we were we were doing more than just a mask mandate. Um, sure. So, but. See, yeah. that, that was fascinating to me of, of looking to the financial side. I didn't think about that at all. Um, and you also said, you know, there are these obscure pieces of evidence, right? Like if a teacher writes on a calendar, oh, that, yeah. hey, we're supposed to have a staff meeting about, you know, COVID mitigation on this date. And even if it was something where there wasn't a formal handout by the administrator or whatever, that can be piece of evidence and when you get into discovery there can be a lot of things that that show up that necessarily aren't in the formal um you know whether it be agendas sent out or emails or things like this it can be notes people took things people jotted on calendars and and things like that so um i thought that was that was pretty interesting right Uh, and the context that we were talking about that in was you know how do you if for some reason, you know, your, your PowerPoint that you presented that day had been, you know, the file had been corrupted or something, you know, how else could you go and get that data? Right. Um, now in, in discovery, you're not, you're not going to go and ask all of your teachers for copies of their calendars. Um, 
but you know, if you do have a gap somewhere, there are some other places to look to be able to, you know, corroborate that that evidence. Um, because also, I mean, there's a concept in discovery about, you know, how much discovery is enough, and you know, is the the cost of that discovery justified um, by the the value of the of the suit. So you have to and you know whether that's monetary or, or equitable value, um, you know, does that is that impactful enough to justify, you know, X number of thousands or millions right. of dollars for discovery. So. Or pulling, yeah, all of the teachers from their classrooms for X number of hours to give testimony and things right. like that and how disruptive would that be to the school function and right. I mean, how much would that add to the so i have one last question so as an attorney um, what are your own best practices and especially uh, an attorney who specializes in, in kind of that forensic side of having things ready to go um, what are your best practices for advising someone hey here's how to be comprehensive and here's how to be prepared in case litigation knocks at your door like what are some things people can do to be in a better position if that happens to them so i think what is a good business practice or a good personal practice for keeping your life organized those are always going to be good practices when it comes to litigation so, um, you know, there are things like, um, you know, if, if you've got all of your tax returns and individual files, um, you know, if on, on a, you know, we're talking about a school district, if, you know, their data is organized and has like, consistent naming conventions for files. Like it's the 2021-10-04 right. um, agenda. Um, rather than just being, you know, agenda or October agenda or October 2021 agenda. You know, there, there are ways to make it, you know, easier to have that information organized so that, you know, if they do get involved in litigation, it's you're not scrambling to find it and you're not sifting through a bunch of stuff that isn't relevant in order to get to the things that you do need to produce because somebody knows that they exist. I mean, right. so, you know, the, the more organized uh, they can be, the, the better. And I think that the point really resonates too, because there's a lot of turnover in schools um, between administrators and then also board members and, and who is the person assigned as the secretary to maintain board minutes, but also a school who's, who's assigned to maintain records of professional development um, and things like this. So they, they kind of get lost, as you've said, um, identify things in kind of that metadata, like the exact day and the exact heading of what was the presentation or a scan of it or a copy of it or to keep it and timestamp it is, is abs absolutely essential. 
So, yeah, there's so much we can do now with, you know, digital data. You know, oftentimes something is automatically timestamped when it's created and automatically timestamped again the last time that it's modified. Um, you know, it's, um, sorry, one of my cats was talking and it's, it's my feral one who, okay. or he's my, he's my scary cat. It's about time for him to, to come out and gotcha. work <laughs> and talk. Um, but, um, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. Like how like, how, how can you best prepare for this? It is. And it's so easy, but it takes, it, it takes work to develop the system. And then it takes a commitment from everybody who has access to the system to follow those rules, to follow, you know, how the, the way that files need to be named and the way that folders get set up and what goes into those folders. And right. So, um, all things that will help you during discovery or evidence or all of that, right? Taking that extra moment to do that. Right. But it's also a good way to, you know, you talk about turnover. It's also a good way to build institutional knowledge. Yes. So when you have a new principal come in and, you know, they're, they're trying to get their, their feet on the ground and get oriented, you know, this is, these are resources that they can easily go to and say, okay, you know, they can do a search of the agendas and see, okay, when did we talk about the athletics budget? I like it. So. Yeah. And that's a point where it's good to underscore that because with turnover, that's not consistently happening. So we have a question here, um, and that, that was the last of our questions for the show and our, our discussion. We have a question here from Moose Gals Corner. She's saying, Lisa, since there are vaccine requirements for students to attend schools, is that only for public? Um, like, for example, like California, we've seen there's a vaccine requirement. Um, is there anything legally stopping school districts from requiring all students to get vaccines? It's from our friend here, Moose Gals Corner in Illinois. Yeah, no. Um the law, the case law is pretty well established that that vaccines can be required. Um, there are generally some like religious objections that can be raised. And again, those, those are discussed in case law, but it, it typically has to be a pretty well established um, objection. So for example, um, uh, Jehovah's witnesses don't accept blood transfusions. Okay. Um, so that would be, and that, that comes from high up in the organization, like that's a well-documented objection. So that type of thing, um, would likely have to be accommodated. Uh, right now, as far as the COVID vaccine goes, there's been no major governing body of any denomination that has come out and said, you know, we object for X reason. Right. So, but yeah, with, um, 
there's a public health and safety um, line of case law and vaccinations are in it. So, and then with, you know, Muscal brought up the public versus private, a private school has even more leeway um, on that. Like they can absolutely, that, I think they can absolutely require a vaccine and say, okay, you don't want to get vaccinated? Here's your tuition back. Goodbye. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, let's, um, let's wrap it up and this has been phenomenal. I just want to thank you, Lisa, also for so much knowledge, um, you've given me to clarify kind of where I was at with trying to frame this for uh, students in my legal issue courses and thought that this would be a very relevant podcast because it's making the news, um, daily where I'm at, you know, school district is, um, suing or, or being sued by a parent or else a school district is having a meeting to change their policy because of something that's happened, uh, COVID related, you know, illness or, or death of a student, for example. Um, and just to let people know kind of what does that look like from a parent perspective, from a school perspective and this whole thing of a, of a empty chair, um, how liability could be assumed or assigned fault, I guess, into those areas. And then just best practices, right? And making decisions, how to inform those decisions, how to document those decisions. And as a school administrator, um, you know, what I'll bring into this discussion is, you know, it's one to two years for a superintendent for their duration in a school district. There's a high turnover rate. Uh, principals, two to three years. Staff are turning over at higher rates also. We know students are moving district to district at a at the highest rate ever in history. So it's trying to transient yeah, that's population. That's a lot of mobility. Mobility, right. So to try to get re reliability on this is is difficult. Um, so as districts are, are working through this, um, we can't assume anymore that kind of, as you said, this inst institutional or legacy knowledge of you know these people being in the district for 10 to 15 years and can pass this on, that's just not there. Right. anymore. So how do districts then maybe try to infuse that into their documentation or offload that into their their documentation and their procedures or policies and things like that? Um, so any, I'm going through any questions. Um, here's one from the Bacon. He says, Lisa, any, any counter argument of schools requiring vaccination from polio, MMR, and other diseases? So. Um, I mean, really the only counter argument that's viable right now is a religious objection. Okay. So. And then here's our good friend at Old Humble Distilling Company, Bacon. That's always one of the reasons why it's so damn mind-boggling. Or that's where Bacon was saying it's homeschooling. As as a school administrator, Lisa, I always, I, it was perplexing for me for a number of years because we had maybe a 90% compliance rate with vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And so 10% of students, and, and you wouldn't push it, right? The state would tell you not to push it. Just have them in school, have the students. And now that's that's changed significantly too. So it's also this just change in um, emphasis from the state. That's where this whole third party thing gets interesting to me because as a school administrator, I would be able to testify and say, you know, when we had to submit our mumps, measles, you know, diphtheria, all of that, 
that the state was pretty much satisfied with 90% or 85% and they wouldn't bug you after that. Like it just yeah. kept being the sliding scale. And it was this kind of mixed message from the state that it didn't matter. We just wanted the kids in schools. Um, and, and yet like that's not the case necessarily with COVID. Wisconsin doesn't have a mandatory vaccine for students, but I know that other states do. So um, I am, this has been awesome, Lisa. I, I know you have um, other things to do. You have a, a few bags of candy you're going to try to give out on November 1st as kind of a pseudo post-Halloween event. No, no. Like I, I <laughs> probably have maybe 20 pieces of candy left. So there's 20 happy kids out there or teens. kids out there. <laughs> Just throw, you can throw it, like toss it underhand, so it's not damaging. I'm telling um, you, there are no kids. <laughs> we have some leftover candy. Unfortunately, not much. Unfortunately, it's not the kind that I like. It's like Twix. I'm like, ooh, like those go out first. I'm not a big fan of Twix. I love Twix. Ooh, yeah. I'm kind of Nestle Crunch Bar, like a thousand grand, and I'm like, wow, like those got to be held back. Those are the last things right? we give out. I've got some Nestle Crunch. Okay. So Nestle, Nestle Crunch. Crunch some Baby Ruth and Butter. It, yeah, and butter. Baby Ruth, high, all high-value candies. I did so. good. I, I, you know, but yeah, like I said last night, I made one of those kids give back a Twix. I was like, I just. just Whoa. Paper <laughs> awesome. I was like, hey, come on. <laughs> give it back. So. Um, everybody, this is your good friend, uh, Dr. David Proden, uh, here at the Safety Doc Podcast. Um, and today we have uh, been fortunate to have our guest attorney, uh, Lisa Lenny, and she's with Murphy Legal in Texas. So you can, uh, you'll probably be Googling it tonight. You're like, Lisa, I need you to help me out. And, you know, I'm so not this sure is I'm on the website yet. I still need to, I, I still need to write a bio. <laughs> write a bio. Okay. So, um, so yeah. Um, so yeah, this again, it's, it's fascinating in the fact that we don't have case law or we can't kind of benchmark back to how this was handled in the last pandemic because, you know, we'd have to go back what a hundred years. So mm -hmm. when I'm meeting with um, school aspiring superintendents or current principals, or even people serving a, in the, superintendent role as their first year, their heads are just like spinning. They don't know where to go with this. Um, some of them feel abandoned by their county organizations, their state organizations, and they want to make sure that they are making informed decisions. And then you also have this, this um, situation where necessarily boards, a school board and a administration, a superintendent might not agree. So the board of education might make a decision that's not in alignment with the superintendent. And if you're a parent, all of this, and you want your child to be safe, and you know, if you're looking at litigation that's coming out towards schools, understanding what that probably means, and then also, um, you know, I would say, as a school admin, a former school administrator, right, working with school administrators, uh, they are working to keep your kids safe. Um, everybody wants kids to be safe. They're trying to figure this out and they're trying to figure out, you know, what are our high contact areas? How do we sanitize those? Um, and there's this big question too, right? On what is the efficacy of mask one versus mask two? So here's a mask that a child is 
as and then a second mask is really like a modified bandana bandana like how do you how do you make those comparable so th- there's a lot of things that have to be figured out um but i think we're in this part two where it's so new people just don't have this figured out um and they won't have it figured out for a while we'll be kind of analyzing this reflectively through forensic um lawsuits which lawsuits i guess are forensic in most part but um so lisa anything to add to uh, our discussion tonight or to our audience i've i've really enjoyed it so, so, so at the comments have been really active and like i have not been able to keep up with them at all <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'm kind of scrolling through here and like there, there's some really good discussion going yeah. on. Um, yeah. So I appreciate all you followers of the safety doc podcast. We were up to 463 subscribers coming into today. So tell a friend, tell a relative, tell a distant relative say, Hey, you have a YouTube channel log in and subscribe to the safety doc podcast. Because if we get the safety doc podcast up to a thousand, then Two things happen. One, the the super chats can be monetized, um, which will allow me to buy more books to get into more libraries. And the second is it's kind of a credibility thing as we get up to a thousand. Um, as I do more work with people, they're like, "Hey, do you have a thousand subscribers?" And I'm like, "Yes." I'm like, combined between that and Podbean and everything, iTunes. Yes, I have a thousand, but. Um, and, and so Lisa and I are working on a show in the future. Um, it's more of a legal note. It's called, you can mail anything. Um, and it's part of the, the law dating back to the constitution. Um, not sure where it'll go, but alcohol, batteries, fireworks, all of those things, anything can go in the mail. Like that was part of the constitution. It got, it got, Edited out at the bottom. So if you look at any printed copy of the Constitution, you can definitely see a scissors mark across the bottom. <laughs> and, uh, and what was below that was all Postal Service related. And it oh, got wow. cut out at the last minute. Um, so, but, you know, just one of those things. Like it just, but yes, if you check, if you go and you check out the original Constitution in Washington D.C. Right, it you can see that down below that little perforated dotted line. Yeah, there. yeah, the perforated and, and the shears were pretty rough back then, so the cut mark isn't very clean. And you're like, what was below that? That was all postal related. Like, what can mm-hmm. you mail and what can't you mail? Um, but yeah, that was one of the things. Could you mail whiskey? And a lot of you know, a lot of the founding fathers were like, yes, and some were like, no. So it kind of was undecided, and they're like, well, we've got to put this thing to print. Like, we can't delay it any longer. So they just like, well, let's cut off this. We'll deal with it later. Never got dealt with. So for a later issue, we'll try to figure that out. And we'll bring in Joe, who's kind of taken this on as a pseudo sabbatical scholarly type of work. Mm-hmm. Study this. Yeah. Um, it's a it's it's a little bit um, eclectic, yeah. scattered right now, but it's coming together. So Lisa, thank you so much. Um, I will admit that last night I, I ate many Twix bars and many. Um, I thought you didn't like the Twix. No, no, no. Sorry, so you're right. I don't like Twix. Um, thousand, or hundred grand, right? Mm. A thousand grand or grand or whatever it is. Hundred grand. Yeah. Hundred grand, and then uh, the Nestle's, and and then I realized about ten thirty. I'm like, I ate too many of those. That was a oh. that was a mistake. I didn't get sick, but I'm like, oh, that's a mistake. Like I. Yeah kind of went over the top on that so um but yes yeah, so 
it's I'm, I still have a lot of candy. And my youngest daughter is is willing to give me candy, and I'm like, no, that's yours. Like you went out and you got that. I don't need the candy, but she's like, do you want this? I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm good. Could you keep your skittles? We're all good there. So everybody, yeah, I mean, this is a crazy time for um, kind of litigation. You're going to be seeing, you'll be seeing more of this on the news. You can refer back to this podcast. And Lisa, just thank you so much also for, uh, I enjoy Thursday nights on Old Unbold Distillery podcast. Uh, you have a wonderful sense of humor. It's very much appreciated. And um, yeah, thank you so much for personally giving me some uh, guidance that I've used in my classes on, on helping, you know, my superintendents um, on how they frame arguments. It's been extremely helpful. As I said, you know, we had a discussion. I took like three pages of notes. Um, so you're really wonderful and generous in those regards. And this has been a terrific show. So thank you so much, Lisa. I've enjoyed it. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very informative here and, you know, over, over on the old Umble. Uh, happy hour 2.0. Uh, you know, I, I do a segment on the ridiculous things I have found on dating apps. So, <laughs> you know, don't right. don't miss my unhinged chronicles. True, and that is that is Thursday nights. What time Central Time is the old unbold distilling? Joe, what time? <laughs> Maybe like nine. It's, yeah, is it it's nine, 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 nine p.m. Central Time. It's, it's funny because I, I had to ask Lisa, I'm like, "What time zone are you in?" She's like, "I'm in Texas. I'm the same time zone as you." I'm like, "I don't, I don't know how these lines break down." And well, you know, El if Paso you're... is in the mountain time zone, so <laughs> okay. I mean, Texas is that big. And I have a friend who lives in like Arizona, and like we don't follow time zones. And then you know, like Phil Henry, it's oh, like they you know, don't do the daylight saving time. <laughs> so, yeah. A daylight savings time. So I'm like, I don't know. Like, I have to ask you. I have no time what it is. I have no idea what time it is by you. So um, there's no S at the end of saving in daylight savings. It's just time. saving time then, right? All right. So, yeah, we, we hit that on, what, November 6th, um, oh, yeah? I believe. The evening of November 6th is is um, where the hour the clock falls back. I don't like that personally. I, I'm a, yeah, I'm like, stop messing with my clock. Just I know. I well, yeah, resetting the clock. Sun come up and set whatever it does. So, I'm like, yeah, you're oh. right. It's night of the sixth, morning of seventh. It's this, and my birthday is November seventh, by the way. So, so you get an extra hour on your birthday. I guess I do, but I don't yeah. want it to get dark an hour early. Like in Wisconsin, that's a double whammy. You get it cold and snowy, and then it gets dark at four o'clock. Yeah, so, I remember being in law school in Chicago, and I lived in the dorm, and, you know, we'd get out of class, and it would get dark at 4 o'clock, <laughs> and so when I did that, we there was a big group of us that usually ate dinner at 6 o'clock, and once it started getting dark at 4 o'clock, you started noticing everybody's coming down to dinner in their pajamas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> didn't happen in September. You know? It's this, it's this disheartening time. And I'll admit like the older I get, like I just kind of between November and March in Wisconsin, you just get through it. And then April, you know, snow starts to melt. You can be outside and do things. Like I'm a big cyclist. Like I will bike a hundred miles. Like that's my thing. 
I'm a long distance cyclist. And, you know, that ends this time of year. You just, you can't, well, yes, like people say, like you can bike in winter. Yeah, I guess you could. I mean, kind of like Evil Knievel could jump over, you know, a building in Las Vegas. But yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but so, so I really miss that. And so like having to this week kind of decommission my bike, you know, and, and do the but whole ceremony. You don't do the is, Cyclops thing inside in the winter? I had that set up and then I was just like, this sucks. Like, I just oh. think I didn't get into it. And I guess I'm not one of these people that's going to subscribe to a Peloton and have someone like, Hey, go and cheer. And you can do this. Like, I actually do get outside and run in winter. And so I've, I've adapted to it. I mean, I lived here my whole life. So I'm kind of used to that, but still like I would trade it in an instant. <laughs> like we went to Disney um, three years, three, four years ago in like February, we drove down there and I remember we left here. It was like snowstorm and just yeah. horrible. Got down there, rolled the windows down on the, on, you know, outside of Orlando. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's like 80, three degrees and just like beautiful. Um, but yeah, I'm not really into the, yeah, that whole indoor. I actually, I sold, I had that for my bike and I sold it to somebody. I put it on Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this thing's in great shape here if you want to buy it. And then, and uh, I think the guy paid me pretty well for it. Like it's like in to training and stuff like that. I'm like, here, this will serve you, serve you well. But no, I just, I just, my, it's a somber ceremony with my bike when I decommission it for the year. It is, it's very sad. I should make a video about like decommissioning my bike because at the start of the year to bring my bike back to life, it's like a, a it's like a battleship that's been decommissioned and then it like gets recommissioned and you have to go through all these steps to bring it back and everybody's kind of happy. And But decommissioning is sad. I have to bring it downstairs and have a special place where I store it and cover it up and stuff like that. It's just bad. It's just psychologically, it's the whole day is gone. This is a day that I'm taking my bike downstairs for the winter. Just write that day off. Do all the bad stuff on that day. Just make that the bad day. Work on taxes. Do things which will make you sad. <laughs> Don't do anything good that day because it'll all be blent together and ultimately it'll be a bad day. I love my federal income tax course. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I don't know. It is so, and I live in the southern part of the state. I grew up in the northern part of the state, which by this time of year has snow. And I talked to one of my friends in the northern part where I grew up. They're like, yeah, we have snow here. I'm like, oh, God, glad I live like 200 miles south of that. But I just, I absolutely hate it. And I think I was talking about this in my last podcast. I So I, I biked last Tuesday. It was 74 and sunny. Very rare for October. So it was like my last long trek bike ride. And I got to this dam built in the 1930s, a, a conservation core dam and we already had a freeze so a lot of the the grass and stuff had died down around it so i was like i always wanted to check it out so i did but the problem with checking out a dam in that type of conditions is i had my bike shoes on and my bike shoes are flat bike shoes aren't meant to have traction because you're not running on the ground and they're not meant to have cushioning and all that stuff so I had my bike shoes on and I'm walking across this dam, which is like, you know, almost a hundred years old. And it's been, <laughs> you know, like since the fifties, no one's been upkeeping it. I just wanted to check it out. So I, but I almost fell like three times, literally. And each time would have been fatal. And you think after the first time being the safety dock and granted, I didn't record any of this because I had to have like my full concentration on like not falling into this dam and perishing. 
I would have like got the cue after the first one, like, oh, dude, like either like take the shoes off or like just don't do this today. I'm like, no, man, I always wanted to check out this dam. So yeah, after like, you know, three near misses of like fatality on this, this dam. And then to get off the dam, I was like, there's only about a foot wide area to run across for a solid 10 feet. And I'm like, I have to, my best option is to accelerate as fast as I can, because if I can get in two steps on that, I can probably just lunge myself forward and land on the bank. And that was the plan I went with and it actually worked. Um, but yeah, I was thinking this is, this is dangerous. I should know better as a safety doc. And then, yeah, the safety doc legacy. He was, he was done in by the curiosity of a 1930s dam. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is dangerous. I shouldn't be doing this. This is very bad. And, but there was some farmer on a tractor who kind of like paused like in his field and was looking and he's like, are you going to go for it? I'm like, <laughs> going for it. My ideas in my bike bag here. So like, if I don't make it, like they'll know who I was and, um, you know, so like I'm kind of covered on those bases, but, um, but yeah, the whole thing was like counterintuitive. Plus like I'm realizing I just don't have the, the actual skills that I had when I was maybe like 25 versus like my current age, my balance and things I had to like work extra into. But anyway, it was cool. Like I, I shouldn't say this, but I don't regret it. It was awesome to check out the inner workings of this dam and, I was just like, whoa, like this. I don't have any pictures to prove it or anything like that. Just the, but I don't know where that was going, but anyway, 74 degrees. It was warm. It was this exceptional day. I knew it was like my one chance. And because of the freeze, I was able to get close to this dam and get away from like the poison ivy and all the other stuff that would have been an, an annoyance and bugs and snakes and things like that. <laughs> like, one time. And like literally had three close encounters with death on that, on that excursion right there. So. So that's crazy. At least I don't know if there's dams by you, but man, they're great to, great to investigate. There's, so um, I mean, I've, I've been on the top of a dam, but I mean, it was kept up and, you know, had this nice pathway for people to walk along. And Wow. Yeah, that's different than the dam I was on. Which hadn't been maintained for probably seventy years. You know, I was I was at Sounds I was at Hoover Dam different. in the year uh, two thousand before all of the heavy restrictions um, with nine eleven. I remember touring to Hoover Dam and it was like one person leading the tour group and there'd be like thirty of you and I was like toward the end. There were all these levers and stuff. I mean, you could have pulled, you could have messed with anything, like you could have done anything. But I, I was walking across the dam and my sunglasses fell off my baseball hat. And the semi locks up all of the brakes and skids to a stop in the middle of the dam. And the guy's like, hey, go get your sunglasses. I'm like, you could have run them over. Like, I, you didn't have to throw the brakes on and lock the semi. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, weren't Ray-Bans, by the way. I got these at the store. But at the gas I, station? Thank you. Thank you. He's like, no, no, no. Go get them. Go get them. Um, so yeah, that was yeah the Hoover. The, I'm glad I did the Hoover Dam tour because I've heard it's more restrictive now. Back then, it was like it was almost like a self-guided tour. <laughs> it was just crazy. How, I remember that at the time. I'm like, God sakes, you're putting a lot of trust in me. I'm like more <laughs> trust than I would put at me at this age and time in my life. 
Granted, I'm not going to mess with anything here, but come on. I mean, at least pretend. Um, no fanny pack. I don't think I, I did have a fanny pack by then. By the, I did have a fanny pack, by the way. It was a U.S. Department of uh, Geological Services green fanny pack. I still remember the color of it. Almost made it that time could also be on my tombstone. Yeah, the damn thing was was iffy. I knew, though, that day going out that I was going to visit the dam if it was accessible. That lady is in the dam seat for still listening. Oh, God. All right. That means I am I need to sign up. All right. So, yeah, um, cool Rush, you should come <laughs> and watch the old double happy hour 2.0 on Thursday and see just how much the same I am. All right. So, Lisa, thank you so much. I um I'm in, having me. indebted to your generosity of sharing your your expertise and, and knowledge in this area. And you're always welcome back to the show. When we get to our thousandth ep episode show, I'll let you know. Um, it's gonna be a big celebration. But in uh, until then, um, also Thursday nights you can find Lisa 9 p.m. Central Time on the old Humble Distilling Company podcast on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So you can enjoy her um insight and her wit and then also what is it the the unhinged chronicles the unhinged chronicles um yeah portion. for full rush i have been on facebook dating because there's good material there so yeah you know um and just uh bull rush did share in the last week that he has embarked on some online dating adventures he publicly did that on a podcast so pretty wild times uh, for our good friend uh, Bullrush in the state of Texas. So yeah, he oh. said we sh should compare notes. Yes. Um, Maybe we can have you on the Old Double Happy Hour. He does have a three-hour perimeter that he will, or three uh, three hours he will drive around him for a date, and after that, it doesn't matter. That's it. You have to be within his perimeter. But I believe he he lives. Close to um, Joe. He lives in the Houston area because he said Joe is 30 minutes away from where he lives. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, and, and Joe from Old Humble said, we're going to talk a murder podcast guest this week. Whoa. Uh, yikes. It's scary. Hey, Joe, is, it, is it B or CC? Totally didn't die. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, at least I know you have a cat that needs to be. Um, oh, right here. Houston area is a big, big place. All right. Yeah. And I am coming down to the greater Houston area in spring. Um, I'm first going to Salt Lake City, and then I'm going to New Mexico, and then I'm going to Houston. And I will reveal the reason for that trip uh, once it comes to spring, which is very interesting. Uh, this this trip, which has actually been in, in the works for years. I'm, it's a solo trip. It's just me. Um, but yes, there will be. Oh, a trip. so this isn't a book signing trip? It, I guess it could be a book signing trip. Um, I should go pick up my book. from the <laughs> If your book is in, Lisa, please consider leaving a review on Amazon. I work at home, so I'm like, <laughs> I never leave. <laughs> Um, and for anybody out there, I have, I have been stuck at the 43 reviews number for like months, which is just like weird. And so obviously yeah, like, gonna be like sending you my bio, <laughs> I have, I have a new book coming out and it's going to be released in April. 
it's done. The publisher is working through it, but they're timing the release for April. And by the time that releases, I want 50, cross my fingers, on School of Errors to be out there. It's in hundreds of libraries, but people will email me and they'll say, hey, like, I loved your book. And then they email back and say, it's awesome. Will you leave a review? And then they're like, sure. And then, like, they don't. And I understand it. Like, it's, but only even like two sentences saying, like, hey, this made me think about things differently regarding school safety and whatever. And that would be great because it does make a big difference for me as someone trying to make a dent in a niche market. So, uh, hey, oh my goodness, old humble. Well, actually, Joe, if you contact me, I, I will be able to provide you with a, um, a reviewer draft, you know, which you could, you could look at and review. I would appreciate it. Yeah, but look at his next comment. And you could actually put, this book is the worst cookbook I've ever read, but the five stars is fine. Yeah, isn't isn't right. It is that would I would I'm fine with that, right? I'm totally fine with that. And my my um, publisher has been kind of stuck on the science, the sci-fi theme with marketing in the cover, and I'm like, it's not a sci-fi book. It's about how humans interact during chaos. So we've we've got to dial it in a little bit. We've got to come to this this merger. But the early artwork is a little it's a little Star Warsish for me. I don't know where we're at here. I'm not George Lucas, so it's not what the book's about. Um, but anyway. All right, Lisa, you rock. Um, I'll see you guys Thursday night over there on the dun, 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 Old Humble Distilling Company podcast. And everybody subscribe, like, share with friends, and we are out here on the Safety Doc Podcast. Good night, everybody. Hey. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.